You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We've got college shooting, tax increases, and toll roads. A lot to talk about today in Michigan state politics. We're going to get right to it. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Josh Barker, and joining me, State Representative Andrew Fink, represents Michigan State House District 35. That's the entirety of Hillsdale and Branch Counties in the city of Hudson and Lenawee County. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Josh. Good to be here. So I want to start with the Michigan State shooting. Uh, most recently, we had a shooting at Oxford High School in November of 2021. In this past week, it hit a little bit closer to home, just up the road in Michigan State. There have been some headlines blaming legislative inaction. One headline from The Guardian, Republicans block gun reform laws a year before the Michigan State shooting. Well, now Democrats control both chambers, so they can very possibly get gun control laws passed. You're the vice chair of the House Judiciary Committee, so some of that certainly things that are being talked about in your circles. Do you think that these events have demonstrated a need for new laws or amendments? And do you think that any of the current proposals that you're hearing about might do anything to help stop these types of incidents from taking place? Well, Josh, so far, I don't think any of the things, any of the proposals that I've heard uh, talked about at sort of a high level would probably have had an effect on an event like the murders at Michigan State last week. Some of the bills that have been introduced, I haven't read every word of them, but as I understand it, things like registering long guns the same way that pistols are currently registered, that would have had no effect. Um, a red flag, uh, or I think what they're, I think the terminology they're using is something like an extreme protection order. A person who's mentally unsound, we already have a process to appoint a conservator over their property. Even if I were more convinced that it would be a, a meaningful difference from our current ability to protect an, a, an unsafe, a person who is not safe for himself or others in the current law, even if I thought it would really change that, you would still have to, to understand how it would interact with the constitutional concerns that we have about due process. I mean, we already have a process for a person who is uh, a danger to himself or others in, in our uh, estates and protected individuals code. So adding to it, but intentionally reducing the process by which the state would seize a person's property or take control of a person's property, uh, I almost said raises red flags. That would have been a bad pun, but you understand my concern. So no, I don't really think that any of the proposals I've heard about would either address this problem or pass constitutional muster. What do you expect from the Democrats in the state legislature? Do you think they're actually going to go and act? Yeah, again, so some of these things have been introduced in the Senate now. They were introduced last week. A series of bills that include red flags, um, some kind of safe, safe storage. I don't know exactly what the parameters there are. Those two items, as well as um, some kind of, a, of what I guess they're thinking of as an enhanced background check process. But I think that mostly would be about registration of, of all firearms currently in Michigan. You essentially have to register a pistol, but not a... Uh, not all other firearms. And so that would be a change that they, they might be seeking to make. So they have introduced them. I mean, there's they're getting to be somewhat more concrete. It's not just a, a label, although, again, I have I myself haven't read all these bills. They've just been introduced in the Senate a few days ago, are not in the House yet. Nothing's been introduced in the House. So it's uh, even if it comes to the, the committee as, that I am the vice chair of, as you said, it probably won't happen for the next couple of weeks. Some of them are saying things like there will be more coming. One additional topic that I saw floated recently was a repeal of Michigan's Stand Your Ground doctrine, where if you're being attacked, uh, violently attacked, uh, you don't have a duty to retreat. You can instead just defend yourself. To me, this is an obviously, between the two choices, you know, Stand Your Ground or a duty to retreat, one is obviously moral, and that is that the state encourages the citizens uh, to stand up for themselves, protect themselves, their property, their families, their neighbors. And the duty to retreat when you're under attack is obviously an immoral position for the state to take as uh, as regards the citizens, especially when, I mean, even under a, a more robustly funded and more 
uh, robustly supported police uh, department that I th- then I think uh, many Michigan cities and and um, uh, even rural areas are experiencing now. I mean, it will take time for the police to so without without there being any amount of of uh, malfeasance on the part of a police agency it still takes time for them to get places. And the idea that, that your only defense is waiting for the government to show up to help you uh, just strikes me as profoundly anti-American in that it, it sort of infantilizes a citizen and says, and you're in your house and you're under attack, uh, you wait for us and we'll save you. So if they add that to the mix, uh, I really think that would go even a step further in disparaging uh, the right that, that Michiganians hold under both our state and federal constitutions uh, to possess firearms, to keep and bear arms. And, and in the state constitution, it expressly says for the defense of himself and the state. You know, a citizen has the right to keep and bear arms for the defense of himself and the state. And that's what I'm saying citizenship should be like. And so a repeal of the Castle Doctrine or, or the Stand Your Ground Doctrine uh, would be really, really offensive. Uh, maybe again, even beyond the still, I think, wrong, ineffective, and constitutionally troubled legislation we already talked about uh it would it would be i think even worse than those things you're listening to radio free hillsdale 101.7 fm i'm josh barker and we have representative fink with us so we've talked a little bit about how there's ineffective proposals in your point of view what do you see as potential effective things that can be done because people will hear about these things and they say we have to do something that's the mantra that was the mantra when it was the march for our lives back when i was in high school mm-hmm. they're like we have to do something but what do you say to your constituents when they say well okay maybe this won't work but what are we what are you doing what can we do yeah well we'll say do something is kind of the uh the language of of um uh, of folks who are upset about any number of topics and so we had it's not the first time that we've gotten phone calls of people saying do something uh, but you know doing something versus doing the right thing you know not 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 always the same thing so uh, in this case the the uh, I mean there's been some kind of back and forth about this because evidently this guy was originally charged with a felony I think it was a possession of a, of a permitless uh, pistol and so you know kind of the the left-wing response has been well you don't even think that we should have these permits for pistols or this registration for pistols um, and so uh, you know you can't complain that this law wasn't enforced on this guy uh, but certainly we have to live in a rational world where if we have the law then it should be enforced and if we are if we shouldn't have the law then yes I wouldn't obviously we wouldn't be saying that that this guy should have been prosecuted for it but right now we have this system where our firearms laws are, are enforced really inconsistently and that does seem to be a part of the challenge. And I mean, I, you know, the left likes to say that this is sort of a retreat to uh, uh, making an excuse. But, you know, I don't think that these behaviors are going to be legislated out of uh, out of life. And so when we look at prevent, pre, you know, things that would prevent them, the, the the broken mental health system we have in the country obviously has to play a part in this because, you know, a guy like this, not only did he have this previous interaction that that. Uh, perhaps, you know, had it gone a different way might have influenced his behavior here. But evidently there was also police called because he was like target shooting in his backyard or something, which is probably against the law because he was in a city uh, based on proximity to other people and whatnot. But uh, it certainly suggests that the police uh, had some interactions with him that might have indicated that he wasn't uh, in the best mental health, you know, to prevent uh, causing damage to other people and their property and whatever. But 
you know, one of the things that I think is broken about the mental health system is that what we're talking about is the police having this interaction. And yes, the police will always have interaction with all kinds of troubled people. But, you know, our policemen are not supposed to be and should we I don't think we would want a system where the policemen are effectively the front line of defense on mental health problems in the community. Maybe we'll get into this a little bit when we if we talk about homelessness today or at another session, Josh. But right now, I think the public servants who most frequently uh, observe mental health problems um, our police or other emergency personnel and schools. And so kind of getting, getting whatever our public health, uh, our public mental health kind of approach is going to be community mental health, whatever the phrase is, you know, I think that's the, that's the term we usually use for the, uh, health agencies, community mental health agencies, um, getting that kind of, uh, on the right track. And I, I don't really mean to blame the individuals that work there so much as the, the greater sort of system that we have set up here, uh, where people with, uh, greater expertise in uh, diagnoses, potential therapies, recognition of the depth of a person's, you know, psychotic problems or whatever. Um, that's not something that I think it makes any sense to expect our police to do or even our school, you know, our school teachers to do. And so I do think that that, that probably is, is a place where there could be some, some common focus. I mean, it's possible that uh, some of the things I'm talking about now could turn into a cer- certain amount of sort of statism that I would want to avoid. Uh, but the it is certainly true that Mentally ill people impose externalities on the rest of us. Obviously, these murders, if this guy was mentally ill, it's a greater uh, cost than most of us usually bear. But uh, but on an everyday basis, a, a mentally ill person typically imposes externalities on the rest of society. And so having some kind of an organized government response does make sense. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We have Representative Fink. Uh, and I want to talk about potential uh, tax reform. Since we talked last time, House Bill 4001 had passed the House and the Senate, but there were different versions. So we had a conference committee. Since we last talked, the conference committee has finished. Uh, that version has gone back to the House and the Senate. Um, the, just the headline numbers and n- none of the big item things have changed. The state's earned income tax credit match, the working family credit, as it's called, that's still in there, um, which is meant to boost work incentives and reduce tax burdens for lower income individuals. Um, we've got a $180 tax rebate uh, that's supposed to be in there for every income tax filer in the state. Um, and then there's the pensions and retirements uh, deduction, which will be phased in over a few years. And then the spending measures. So, you know, with our large surpluses they're seeking to redirect some of that into very smaller funds that's the economic development fund most of it to the SOAR fund um, which we've talked about a lot before so on the books it wouldn't be as large of a surplus as we've been having uh, which in effect would get rid of the automatic tax cut so all of this we've talked about before but uh, there's been a recent vote in the senate about immediate effect um, and that's definitely something that people are I at least in the news reports I'm seeing that that's still all very up in the air. What do you see happening with that? What do you see with the path forward with 4,001? There's some talk about still the $180 tax rebate. There may be being some changes made to that, even at such a late hour, which to me seems kind of odd considering we're already out of conference again. I don't know that that 4,001 could really be the vehicle for something different now. It might just have to be a vetoed or not sent to the governor I'm not sure. I'm trying to. I'm not given given the fact that the Senate is evidently not done with their vote on immediate effect. I guess it would still come back to us for uh, presentation to the governor. So, um, I suppose 
Well, no, because they've already voted on the substance. So I think it would have to be a new bill if it's going to change. But I guess I'm, I, I would have to sort of reconsult all the Arcania, all the rules to to figure that out precisely. But in any event, so the, the challenge that they have with immediate effect, you know, in the Senate, they actually count the, they count the individual senators to determine whether two thirds have voted for immediate effect or not. And uh, in the House, we don't do that. Um, I don't know how that tradition started. I will say I sort of think the Senate version is better, but it's also kind of consistent with uh, American founding era political science that the Senate would be stricter about the rules and the House would be a little bit rowdier. So that's not that big of a surprise, I guess. But uh, there's a certain degree of envy I have that they actually uh, count them on the on the Senate side. So if they don't get immediate effect, then the $180 checks can't really go because it'll be at the presumably it'll be after the, the end of the fiscal year. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that they're, they're disputing right now. You know, the, the dispute over whether to end immediate effect, I think was always going to probably present itself because there was going to be some point at which the Republicans refused to grant immediate effect, immediate effect on a Democrat priority. And the Democrats would be faced with the, the, uh, perhaps insatiable desire to increase their power on a temporary basis and thereby overturn what has been, I think, a pretty stabilizing force of the, of the Senate's immediate effect, not being as automatic. So, you know, we'll, I guess we'll see what happens. I'll be kind of surprised if the Dems don't sooner or later uh, terminate immediate effect because uh, I just don't think that their lust for power can be satisfied without doing it. But in any event, you know, those hundred eighty dollars checks, as you mentioned, are part of a larger tax plan. But the the aspect that you didn't really mention is that the amount of money of one hundred eighty dollars per filer. You know, when she was asked how they came up with this amount, the governor said math. Well, what's the math? It's essentially taxpayers. Uh, or eight hundred million eight hundred million dollars divided by the number of of uh, tax filings, you get about one hundred and eighty. That's the amount of money that they needed to spend and attribute it to fiscal year twenty twenty two in order to avoid the automatic income tax cut uh, going into effect that the twenty fifteen gas tax deal would would have imposed as of January first of this year. So right now, as long as this bill doesn't uh, uh, get signed, uh, everyone in Michigan will pay a lower tax rate next year uh, than they will if this bill is signed because of this accounting game that they're playing to move $800 million from FY23 into FY22. So that's what this entire $880 scheme is about. And that's why it makes so little sense. That's why it's such a piddling amount of money. I mean, it's obviously all of us would prefer having $180 more than we have, uh, than, than, than we have today. Uh, but notice, for example, they didn't take time to figure out how to uh, parcel it out uh, by uh, household in a way that didn't penalize marriage. So right now, if you're two unmarried people living together uh, and each paying taxes separately, then that household would get $360, whereas, say, my household would get $180. And so there's seven people in my household and uh, and two people in that household, and yet I'm going to get half as much money as, as that one. That doesn't seem like smart tax policy doesn't seem like it's well thought out. Uh, but again, the, the, the simple math was just get $800 million out of the budget for FY23 so that we can raise taxes in tax year 2023. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We have Representative Fink with us. Now, I want to discuss where the other additional funds are going. Uh, as we talked about, the corporate income tax is being redirected in 4001 so uh, also dealing with the budget surplus so that it's not all going into the general fund. Most of it's going to the store fund, $500 million of it. But then we've also got some going to the revitalization and placemaking fund, which would support things like the Kiefer House development uh, in Hillsdale 
And then another bit will be going to the Housing and Community Development Fund, and that seeks to create affordable housing, and the fund's goal is addressing homelessness uh, in that way with housing. Uh, I wanted to highlight that in particular, as you've already alluded to, homelessness has been identified as a big problem here locally. Uh, Last fall, Hillsdale Daily News reported the officials estimated 75 to 120 homeless people in Hillsdale County, 400 in Branch County. Uh, The city of Hillsdale just this past month established a new homelessness task force. Um, And in addition to this funding from 4001, uh, HUD federally announced that Michigan's rural homelessness program, the Balance of State Continuum of Care, is getting $1.8 million in grants. It's got 61 counties, but Hillsdale and Branch are both part of that. Um, They're not Lenaway, interesting enough. But so as we're thinking about the issue of homelessness, just broadly, and we've got more money going towards these various housing efforts at the state level uh, seeking to combat it, do you think that those types of efforts are going to be useful and that they'll help deal with the issue, or are there other things that need to be taken into consideration as we're dealing with homelessness? Well, when I think about you know, homelessness in areas like ours. So you, the number you had there is for Branch County is 400. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, so I think that, that the problem has actually been around a little bit longer in Coldwater than in Hillsdale of kind of, uh, you know, n- newly enlarged homeless populations in small towns. Uh, but we're not the only ones. Uh, probably uh, my suspicion would be that Coldwater is impacted by being on I-69 and US-12. Uh, and Hillsdale is not on not not quite on twelve, and there's no expressway in Hillsdale County, so it, it might uh, it might lead to sort of less in in migration on that score. But in any event, the uh, the the problem of of homelessness, I mean, it's it's uh, I think it's what a social scientist would describe as a as a problem with a lot of um, confounding data in it, because so you have people who have fallen on hard times, you have people who have uh, bizarrely to most of us, but sort of chosen. Uh, uh, to be homeless. I mean, there's some people who object to the uh, assumption that they're supposed to be housed. And as I understand it from talking with city councilmen here in Hillsdale, that some of the feedback they're hearing from some of these folks is uh, that their lifestyle is to be homeless and sort of um, whatever transient. And so uh, they don't, they don't like being told that they're supposed to be housed or that their homelessness itself is a problem. Um, and then I think you have, maybe in both of those camps uh, and then just sort of as an independent cause, a significant problem of mental illness uh, or addiction, which again, those two things often are often confounded mentally ill people with addictions. So you kind of have like this multi-layered problem and even like the homelessness itself. I mean, that's, you know, we describe that as the problem, but it's, it's, um, it's not just a person is homeless that, that stresses out a neighbor. It's a person is homeless and uh, you know, is camping on my land or is camping next to my land or uh, especially say a mentally ill person accosted me in some way that, that I didn't like or said something to one of my kids or something along those lines. I mean, these are the kind of reports that we're hearing locally. It's just not just the fact that these people aren't ho- don't have a house. It's that they don't have a house. And again, as I said before, they're sort of imposing externalities on the community in different ways. And so I, I think that it's it's good that the state is maybe trying to provide some broader resources on the on the topic itself. Um, I have read some uh, at least popular literature that suggests that um, providing a house independent of other uh, sort of personal responsibility related changes, um, getting you know say get taking a job that kind of thing, uh, doesn't 
necessarily address all of those other confounding factors I was talking about and uh, probably is uh, is at best a temporary adjustment if all you if all you do is house a person who is also mentally ill if all you do is house a person who's also an addict if all you do is house a person who is uh, uh, kind of stacked bad choices up over a handful of years um, then you probably aren't really getting to the root cause of of, uh, of the problem um, and so I think that you know um, there might or might not be some benefits from however this, these resources are deployed uh, but I think that the problem of, uh, of sort of homeless folks uh, Im- imposing tr- problems on other people is uh, is bigger than than just a question of whether there's an available place for them I mean uh, in addition you know I the the instinct that the state has that the pro the, the problem we have with housing is that we don't have enough of it for the pe- people in the lowest income bracket um, I think sort of treats housing as a unique good that isn't uh, more or less susceptible to normal market forces. And that's something that over the over the years I've come to really feel strongly about, that housing is more like another good than it is less like another good, if that makes sense, that uh, we should be looking at ways to increase housing stock if we want to bring the price down, just as, uh, you know, with the day that the uh, cheeseburger was invented, you could have ch- you know charged a lot of money for it, but now there are too many cheeseburgers to charge much for one cheeseburger. If we have more houses... Uh, then it'll be less expensive for the average family to get one of them. And our housing stock in our in the state is uh, the average single-family home, I think, is now over 40 years old. I think the number was bef- was built before 1980, which would mean like 43 years old or something. And uh, getting additional stock online, both multifamily and single-family, should be a major priority. That's something that I've been working on. Uh, a package of bills that I've been working on in the legislature, more or less since I got there, I'm I'm hoping to have... Uh, some of them introduced soon, but the idea is to to allow people who want to build houses for Michigan families to do it, and by doing that, you're going to have a greater effect on bringing the the price of housing down for everybody. Because, you know, if a if a developer builds a four bedroom house, and uh, you know a, a newlywed couple that just had their first child moves out of their bungalow and into the larger house, they're not going to burn the bungalow down. That the house is now going to be available for somebody else, and kind of that that uh, process of of freeing up. Uh, space in all kinds of housing by allowing new housing to be built at lower costs uh, would, would make a big difference. And unfortunately, a lot of those costs are imposed just by regulations. I think it was the National Home Builders estimated that about $93,000 of, uh, of regulatory burdens are, are baked into the price of a new unit of housing. Obviously, it's hard to sell a house for, say, 190000 if 93000 of it is uh, not even the material and labor, but just the getting 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 to be allowed to build the house so that's that's i think a real uh enemy of growth in our state and something that we have to address you're listening to radio free hillsdale 101.7 fm as we close out today i wanted to talk a little bit about something that was making headlines uh about the roads governor whitmer of course ran on fixing the roads back in 2018 and to a lesser extent but it was still mentioned in the campaign last fall I was pretty surprised when last week the Michigan Department of Transportation under the governor issued a study on the feasibility of turning some of our freeways into toll roads to pay for their increased maintenance and generate revenue. Uh, was showing how the falling gas tax revenue due to greater fuel efficiency, miles per gallon in various vehicles, uh, has hurt the state. So locally, they've got a lot of roads that are on this study, mostly in Detroit and Grand Rapids, but uh, Interstate 69 is one of those roads that's being considered. 
Um, back in 2019, the governor said she's skeptical of toll roads, but just last month she told reporters that she's open to starting tolling, and this certainly seems to be uh, a step in that direction. Uh, what was your reaction to this? I know the Senate is having a hearing on this. What do you think? Is this a good idea? Yeah, I have not read the study yet, and I guess I'll have to if it, if it does get farther along. My skepticism comes from concern that increasing the number of ways that the government can take money is a problem in and of itself. And so one of the problems I have with the way our state taxes is that we tax property, sales, and income. And those are really the three main ways that a government can raise revenue. And we've chosen all three as methods to raise revenue. I suppose maybe a benefit is because maybe it's sort of more stable to do it that way. But you understand why I'm sort of saying it means that a person really can't sort of you know, eat, sleep, or breathe without the government finding a way to tax. Like the Beatles song, The Tax Man. You know, if you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you try to move, I'll tax your feet. That's kind of how it feels. And so adding a new way in which the government's going to claim revenue, uh, just it raises concerns for me because uh, sort of uh, the appetite getting too expansive. The the obvious benefit, though, of a, t- of a toll road is that it's a very precise user fee. And so it's only the people that are using the resource that are paying for it is the idea. I suppose if it were strictly limited in that way, um, then it, it could be something that we could explore. But the, the problem is we're still going to be taxing the gasoline that the people are using to drive on even that road. And so how are you going to sort of accommodate for that? So it could only be like, say, the sort of an extra cost. But if a person's, you know, if a person winds up making that most of their commute and they're they're buying the gasoline, I mean, it, it just sort of, then it sort of removes the credibility that the gas tax itself has as a user fee. And so hybridizing which user fee we're using, I think it, it presents a choice that I, I guess I think I would prefer to see made rather than say, we'll just do both. You know, we'll have a gas tax for everybody and we'll have this toll road. So I guess in order for me to, to take it seriously, it's, it's going to have to answer a lot of questions. All right. Well, we will see if that ends up coming to the legislature further. You've been listening to Radio Free Holesdale 101.7 FM. Thank you again to Representative Fink for joining us today, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Josh.